If you're an author or plan to be one, get excited because this podcast is for you. Book Marketing Mentors is the only podcast dedicated to helping you successfully market and sell your book. If you're ready for empowering conversations with successful marketing mavens, then grab a coffee or tea and listen in to your host, international best-selling author, Susan Friedman. Welcome to Book Marketing Mentors, the weekly podcast where you learn proven strategies, tools, ideas, and tips from the masters. Every week, I introduce you to a marketing master who will share their expertise to help you market and sell more books. Today, my special guest is a persuasion and human influence expert. Dave Lacani is one of the nation's most recognizable experts in the art of persuasion human influence, and business growth strategies for entrepreneurial companies. He's an award-winning author and international speaker, having spoken to over 3 million people in 126 countries around the globe. He teaches businesses how to leverage psychological and biological responses to applications of persuasion to rapidly increase sales, make marketing profitable, change behavior, and develop deeper relationships. A media regular, Dave has been featured in outlets including The Today Show, CNN, Business 2.0, Sales and Marketing Management, and Inc. Magazine, and hundreds more. Recently, Dave has been a great help to me and my business, and I am thrilled to welcome him to the show. So, Dave, thank you for being this week's guest expert and mentor. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Before we get entrenched in a conversation about persuasion, I think it would be good to understand the actual meaning of the word so we start off on the same page. That's a great idea. There are a number of ways that people define persuasion. All of them are probably accurate if you're doing it from a the standpoint of just a word definition, the action of persuading someone or being persuaded to do or believe something, that's the fundamental definition of persuasion. My definition of persuasion is just slightly different than that. And it's helping people come to their own most logical conclusion, which happens to be one you share. How about the difference between persuasion and manipulation? Because I've heard many people sort of think of persuasion as a way to manipulate somebody to do something. Talk to us about that. I'm really glad you asked that question because that's a core part of what I believe, that there is a fundamental difference, but it's not as clear always as people imagine. So I'm going to get to that definition, but I'm going to tell you why this is so important to me. So as you may know, I was raised in a religious cult from the time I was six until I was 16. And I left that cult and went away, not necessarily knowing fully the difference between persuasion and manipulation. So many of the things we did to get people to join a cult, as it turns out, were highly manipulative. To me, those seemed like that's just how people operate in the world from being a young person raised in that. So when I actually started understanding the difference, it became vitally important to me that people really understand the difference between persuasion and manipulation. So if we were sitting in a room full of people right now, and I asked people to raise their hand if they'd ever been manipulated, 100% of the hands would go up. If I asked them how many of them wanted that to happen again, 100% of the hands would stay down. But there's also a little bit of gray area in there. So the idea is that everybody knows what manipulation is. Nobody likes it. It doesn't feel good. 
And so the difference between persuasion and manipulation is this. When I started doing my study of persuasion, and when I started writing my first book, Persuasion, the Art of Getting What You Want, I ask a lot of people, what does manipulation mean? And interestingly enough, attorneys, for example, say all attempts at persuasion is manipulation. And so do psychologists in many cases say all attempts at persuasion are manipulation because what you're trying to do is cause someone to change their mind. You're manipulating an outcome that they don't arrive at organically or through their own means. It doesn't mean that organically or their own means is correct. It just means that any attempt to influence it is manipulation. You're manipulating their opinions. And I accept that as being a definition of manipulation, but ultimately at the end of the day, we know what we mean when we say manipulation. We mean that thing that happens when somebody gets us to do something that turns out to be only in their benefit, that no, regardless of what it takes to get the other person to take the action, have the behavior, have the experience, doing any of those things, the end justifies the mean for the other person and all the value is in it for the person doing the manipulating, not the person who is being manipulated. So what I came to is this idea that the single difference between persuasion and manipulation is intent. If your intent is to get whatever you want, regardless of the outcome for the other person, if your intent is to get someone to do something, regardless of what it's required to get them to do it, then you're manipulating. If your intent is to help people come to their own most logical conclusion, which happens to be one you share, and that same intent would be as good for you as it is for them, that's persuasion. So that's the real difference. And manipulation is always discovered. It never feels good. And nobody wants it to happen to them again. Persuasion is always elegant. It feels part of the conversation. And people just simply interact with it in a way that feels good. And so those are the differences between persuasion and manipulation. I love the word elegant, an elegant way to do something. So Thinking about that, why are persuasion techniques so important to our listeners who are primarily, as you know, nonfiction authors? Mm -hmm. Well, the interesting thing is, as authors, you know, there's over a million books published per year. And that's a lot of books compared to the number of people who are actually still readers in the United States, let's just say, you know, who might read your book. So we have to be more persuasive in order to cut through the clutter and the deluge of information that exists in order to get people to think, maybe I should buy and read this book because it could fundamentally change my life in some way. It will make me more knowledgeable. It will make me better. But ultimately, at the end of the day, the reason that you need to understand persuasion is so that you can sell more books and so that you can get more people to buy the books, which then ultimately give you an opportunity to persuade them to buy your courses or other material, get them to hire you to speak or whatever else it is that you might be doing to monetize the back end of your business. So understanding how to persuade people effectively and properly is a fundamental skill of all authors. And unfortunately, it's one that many authors, especially authors that are not as successful, spend very little time with because they feel like they're an author and that should do all of the heavy lifting for them. But the reality of it is, is that as books become even bigger commodities than they've ever been before, anybody can publish a book, anybody can publish a book online, or they can publish a, anything they want on the internet, the amount of information we're bombarded with becomes so mountainous that there's no way for people to have a good filter. So what they're really looking for is a way of understanding who is an expert, who is someone I should be listening to, who is someone I should engage with, and where should I spend my resources whether it's dollars or time, one over the other. 
So persuasion helps them make all of those decisions. So a lovely segue into that is how about a few simple techniques that our listeners could use? Sure. There are a number of very simple techniques, but really simple techniques is the idea of giving to receive, the law of reciprocation. The law of reciprocation says, if I give you something, you feel obligated to give me something back or inclined even. Obligated might even be too strong a word. It's actually that you're automatically pre-programmed that way. So the interesting thing about this is, is that if I, you know, for example, you'll see ladies do this quite often. Somebody will say, oh my gosh, I love that shirt you have on. And the moment a woman says that to another woman, they have to immediately find something they can compliment them back on. And that's the law of reciprocation. But it's not just with women. It works with everyone. If I say nice tie to a guy, he's going to say great jacket. We're pre-programmed from our very earliest age that if somebody does something positive for us, we do something in return. And so if you're a nonfiction author and you have a book that is about a particular topic, if you can give someone something in advance you know, a downloadable item, a free video that they can watch, some token of your knowledge that they can get first for free, it makes them much more likely to want to do something in return, which is, could be as simple as liking your Facebook page or subscribing to your email list, or it could be as significant as buying your book. But whatever those things are that they feel is the next possible step that they could take for the thing that you gave them is an important thing to do. That's why probably a lot of people on your podcast, I'm sure, are familiar with the idea of lead magnets, giving someone something for free to give you their email address. That's why those things are so important. That's the most basic sort of exchange that way. The second thing that they can do is they can use storytelling. Storytelling is our oldest form of communication. It is the way that most of us learned to learn, and we know exactly what to do when people start telling a story. So I'm going to tell you how to make your reader, your listener, your book buyers heroic. And so heroic is spelled out. We start with the H, which is the hook. So H, we want to hook them. We want to have a powerful headline. We want to have a powerful core idea, a big why that makes people stop in their tracks and say, that's interesting. Then E, we want to increase the level of emotion around this idea. We want to tell them what they believe that's already true, that's correct. We want to tell them what that is. We also want to enhance the emotion around the potential problem that could be solved for them. So enhance their pain just a little bit. We also want to polarize in that place of emotion. So polarization means getting people off the fence. We don't want them to be on one side or the other. We want them to believe what we believe right? So we're going to push them off the fence in our direction, hopefully. But if they won't fall off in our direction, then we want them to fall off on the other side of the fence so that they're completely polarized against us so that they're not wasting their time and we're not wasting our time preaching to people who aren't in the choir. The R is the realization. We want to have this realization for a moment that they found a potential solution. They have to be able to get through that when you're telling them the story that there's a realization that this may be the book that solves my problem, that gives me the answer I've been looking for. Then you help them overcome the resistance of why you versus someone else. What are they resisting to? Where are the ideas that they might have some challenges left? The I is to inspire action. This is all persuasive, but this is the more traditional sort of sales approach that people think of when they think of persuasion. This inspire action is asking them to buy the book, buy your course, buy whatever it is that you have that allows you to earn money. So ask them 
to make that decision to inspire action. And then the final thing is connection. So it's getting them connected to your bigger community, your bigger group, connected to your bigger information once they've taken that action so that they become fully inculcated with your ideas and with your community and with all of the ways that they can connect with you. So heroic is the word you want to remember, but that's for your storytelling process that allows you to tell this really powerful story that moves people from inattention to being a part of your community and having purchased everything that you have. I love that. That's fantastic. I was just writing it down like crazy. So I'm going to put that in the notes, everyone. If you didn't capture it, let's say you're in a car at the moment listening to this, I will definitely have that on the page for you. And what about another simple technique? You know, another simple technique is, you know, people are very persuaded by what they see other people doing. So working to get many reviews, for example, for your book, many positive reviews is very important. Now, everybody wants all five-star reviews, but it's important to also have a few that are not all five-star, right? Those three-star and two-star reviews, as long as it's not, you know, even a small majority, right? It should only be a few. You want a few of those, but ultimately what you really want is a lot of four and five star reviews for your book. Because if everybody else is saying it's a good book, it makes it very simple for people to say, I can take a chance on this. Even more importantly, if you can get people to do video reviews of your book, where the person is actually talking and they hear them explaining why the book is good, those are incredibly persuasive. So if you think about this idea of social proof, right? That's the, that's the technical persuasion term for this. But really what it is, is monkey see, monkey do. The original studies that were done around this was this. A person walked to a place in a street in New York. They stopped and started staring up at a building. Pretty soon, two or three other people stopped and were staring up at the building. Pretty soon, a small crowd had gathered, and the original person who was staring up at the building then walked away. But people kept stopping and staring because everyone else was doing it. And so that is what happens when people, and, and that's how bestsellers are built, by the way. The more people talk about the book, the more people say you have to read it, the faster that spreads through communities, the more likely it is that you're going to make one of those lists. So that whole idea of social proof becomes very important. When you can get, you know, other authors who are, you know, as influential or more influential than you to announce it to their communities or their tribes, that social proof has even higher value because they're recognizable as well. And they're people who other people want to look to as filters or curators of their experience. So that idea of social proof is incredibly important for authors. And it's also one of the things I think authors don't spend enough time on. When I wrote my first book, one of the mistakes that I made was not really focusing on getting reviews. I just thought, oh, people, you know, they'll read my book and if they like it, they'll review it. Well, the reality of it is, is that people only do what they're inspired to do. And remember what we said in the heroic part, inspiring action, that's the selling part, right? Writing is the doing part of thinking and inspiring is the doing part of selling. So what we have to do is inspire them to actually take the action we want. So we want to send them an email if we know they bought the book and say, hey, would you mind reviewing this? We want to create you know, information that we can share in our blog posts or on social that reminds people to review the book positively because that gives us a lot of social proof that we can use in many other areas. Now, I said that we want a couple of one and two star reviews. I don't recommend going and asking for one and two star reviews. You'll get them anyway. 
it's okay that they're there. Number one, no matter what we all write, as much as we all want to write the perfect book, somebody is not going to agree with what we say. Somebody's not going to like what we say. But it's good because we need a little bit of friction. If everything is all five-star reviews on Amazon, the problem with it is, is that everybody starts to think, oh, these are friends and family reviewing this book. It's not real. If there's too many one- and two-star reviews, people would rightfully think that it's not a good book. But if there are you know, 1% one- and two-star reviews, 95% that are you know, four- and five-star reviews, and then you know, there is 4% of like three-star reviews, that's a nice little breakdown. And so we want to keep front-loading that, that good review process. Let the negative ones fall where they may. Don't even read them. They're not worth your time. And let that be there so that people can see that this is legitimate. Because again, they're looking at that social proof and saying, does this match my expectation? One of the things that you talked about was a mistake that you made. What about some other mistakes that maybe your clients have made? I know you don't make too many, but you know, maybe <laughs> your clients have made some mistakes. Yeah, I wish I didn't make as many when I was starting out in this, uh, this whole book business. But you know, some of the things like my clients do is they forget that they're telling a story. They focus too much on being the expert and being seen in a very, very specific way. Instead of remember that they're telling a story and they're getting people emotionally engaged in the book. And I don't care what your book is about. Your book could be on thermonuclear radiation, but you're still telling a story that those people who are in your audience get interested in and get fascinated by. And so the idea is not to be so overly technical that people are just, you know, they're looking at you as a robot who's reciting facts. You want to get them emotionally engaged in your book. And so many of my clients don't do that. They really focus on trying to be so professional and whatever they believe that they think people you know, in the world should see them as, they focus on that as opposed to just remembering that people read books and people are moved by story and they're moved by their emotions and really focus on that. The other mistake that a lot of authors make is not focusing on writing regularly once they've written the book, not learning the basics of marketing, not understanding what search engine optimization is, buying media is online, promoting posts on Facebook, making sure that they understand the role of public relations in book publishing and how they can get proper publicity if they do the work. And working on those basics of marketing are the things that my clients often make mistakes about. And that's usually ultimately why they find me as well. They've made all the marketing mistakes. They don't know what they've not been doing. And so then they'll finally find me and say, okay, I need to make some money from this. How do I do it? And so that's when we'll get involved. So I'll give you a, a great example. I have a client. You can look him up. He wrote a book called The Power of When. His name is Michael Bruce. He's a sleep doctor. In fact, he owns the sleepdoctor.com. If you Look at him when he started, he came to me and he was one of the most visible psychologists on the planet, literally, on the topic of sleep. He had been on the Today Show and Dr. Oz and a bunch of things, right? So he had all this visibility, but, but no one was really engaging with him in a meaningful way. And so he tried a bunch of things, nothing really happened. So then we had him get really focused on a single idea, the single idea around his book. We created a simple tool for him to use a quiz. And he had a quiz in his book called, you know, what is your chronotype? Your chronotype is how you relate to time and your biorhythms and the best time to do anything. So he created this quiz so you could understand what your chronotype was. And he focused everything on sending people to the quiz. Now the quiz did the hard work of helping people find out what their chronotype was, but then it gave them a series of follow-up emails that helped them understand exactly how to learn to do things better by timing 
their days properly based on what they wanted to do based on their chronotype. Well, many, many people who took the quiz had never purchased the book, but it gave us an opportunity to keep promoting the book to them throughout the way. So if they wanted to know more ways to do it, the best way to do it was buy the book, which had dozens and dozens in it for each chronotype versus those people who had bought the book early who got a different set of information. So it's this whole idea of understanding marketing, driving people to a single simple idea that gets them to ultimately buy your book. It gives you a chance to influence and persuade them over time. And so really understanding marketing, really understanding what you want your customer to do and telling them specifically what you want them to do, giving them that path to purchasing your book, whatever it is. You want to be able to give that to them very clearly, very succinctly, and give them a clear path. If you leave it up to people to make a decision about what to do, they'll always do whatever the most directive person tells them to do. So if you think you wrote a good book and you're sitting along waiting for people to buy it, unfortunately, the good marketers are going to crush you and your best book will never be seen. So really focus on making sure that you're giving people a clear message, a clear path, and a clear way of engaging with you and ultimately buying your book. Which is, again, an excellent segue, Dave, into how clearly can they find you? If our listeners want to know more about your services, what do they need to do? Oh, they can just go to boldapproach, B-O-L-D-A-P-P-R-O-A-C-H.com. You can email me there. You can engage with me there. Or you can also find me on Facebook, Twitter, any of the social medias. I'm just whatever it is, slash Dave Lacani, L-A-K-H-A-N-I. And if you were to leave our listeners with a golden nugget, what would that be? A golden nugget would be to spend at least 90 minutes a day in fearsome focus marketing your book every single day. Think about another way you can engage. Think about another way you can engage your readers, engage potential readers, engage partners who could help promote your book. Think about what you're doing to promote the book is leading into the sale of the rest of your products and services. And if you're interested, you can always join a group that I have for writers and speakers on Facebook. It's called Word Slingers. And if you just go to facebook.com slash Word Slingers, I believe you'll find it. If not, just search for Word Slingers and you'll find it. And we talk about all of these ideas in there on an ongoing basis. Wow. What rich wisdom. My goodness, listeners, you have really got the gamut of incredible tools about persuasion. So Dave, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom. And thank you all for taking time out of your precious day to listen to this interview. And I sincerely hope that it sparked some ideas you can use to sell more books. Here's wishing you much book marketing success. The time is now to take action and finally build your book-selling empire. And the great news is that Susan is here to help you. Visit bookmarketingmentors.com and sign up for a free 15-minute book marketing strategy session with Susan. She'll help you discover your first steps to marketing and selling your book. Only those who take action are rewarded, so visit bookmarketingmentors.com and we'll see you again next week. Hi, it's Susan again with another marketing tip. Today we're going to talk about making the most of your productive time. If you're like most people, very often you find yourself struggling to get everything done or working late into the night. When you're running your own business, it's sometimes hard to remember 
that there are only 24 hours in a day and some of those hours have to be used for sleep, food, general living and of course family. Once those hours are gone, there's no way to make more of them. So we've got to use the ones that we've got wisely. If you constantly feel like you're playing catch up and working 15 hour days, you're probably overextended. Budgeting your time and making the most of it comes down to setting up a solid schedule and sticking to it, as much as you can, of course. Stuff happens, so make sure that the schedule you put together has enough flexibility in it to deal with crises and changes. It's a good practice to schedule only about 75% of your day so that you can deal with those unforeseen challenges. The first thing you want to do is consider whether you're a morning person or an afternoon person. Most of us fall into one of those two categories, and it's a good idea to schedule your most important projects during your uptime whenever possible. If you're the type of person who doesn't wake up until noon, of course you certainly don't want to schedule a meeting with your biggest client at 7am. So make sure that you take your personality into consideration when you're setting up your schedule. That's it for today, so until next time, keep exercising your marketing muscle. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.